Good morning, Illuminate. Hey, I'd like to begin our time together this morning by leading us in a prayer for the situation in Afghanistan. Some of you may be aware that the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. The second fastest growing church is actually in Afghanistan, right? So we need to pray. Father, this morning we're uh, mindful, well, first and foremost, of the brave men and women, the soldiers who are serving, Lord, offering protection in a very, very difficult uh, environment. Lord, we pray for their protection. Father, we ask for um, a special measure of grace on their lives. Father, for the Afghan people, so much has changed so quickly. And yet, Lord, the scriptures tell us that the nations are in your hands. So we pray for your providential and sovereign guidance over them. Lord, for the church in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, the Afghan Christians. Lord, not knowing exactly what lies ahead, we ask that you would give them that supernatural and transcendent peace that the scriptures talk about, that you would guard their hearts and minds because they believe in Christ Jesus. And even as we're going to see in the text this morning, the gospel makes death a gardener. And so to that end, we pray for their strength, their encouragement. Father, we ask uh, that you would be just so real to them now. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So beginning on September 12th, you've heard me mention this for the last couple of weeks, we're going to start our BSD, Bigger, Smaller, Deeper, community groups. And if you've been coming to the church for a while and you're already already plugged into a group, great, you're set. If not, I can't encourage you strongly enough to get involved and to sign up for one of those groups. You can do so in the uh, lobby or through the app or online. This is basically our way of trying to get us all on the same page. You've heard me talk a little bit about the future vision of the church. And so By getting together in these smaller communities, this will be our opportunity to really wrestle with what is my part, right? What does God have for me as we look out into uh, the future? We've been saying that God has taken us so, so much further, faster than we ever thought. You know, we have this saying around here that we say all the time, only God. And so as we look into the future, we're just super excited for this, uh, this next chapter, and we want all of you to participate uh, with us. So if you got your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 22. I, I think I mentioned this last week, but the second half of this book, it's, uh, it's really sobering because it tracks the life of the Apostle Paul. And what we've seen so far is one attack after another. And it comes from seemingly an unusual place. The attacks are actually coming from his Jewish brothers. They're accusing him of betraying Moses. They're accusing him of upsetting Old Testament law. In fact, at one point, there's a specific accusation where he's accused of taking a Greek that is a Gentile beyond the place where Gentiles were allowed to go on the temple grounds. 
There's a special place just for the Gentiles, or they call them God-fears, but beyond that, they weren't allowed to go. And so Paul is accused of taking a Greek beyond that space into the space that was reserved for Jews. Of course, none of this is true, but the rumor mill is flying, and Paul has these enemies, and ultimately, uh, they, they want him dead. And Paul is trying to do the right thing along the way. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, I'm sure you have, where you're just trying to do the right thing, right? You're trying to do the right thing. And even in trying to do the right thing, bad things happen. So in, in his defense, in an effort to say, look, I'm not anti-Judaism, he said, I'll even take a Nazarite vow. In fact, I'll pay my own money for others to take a Nazarite vow, just so you can understand that I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm not anti-Judaism. And, um, of course, it doesn't work. So there's this riot that's surrounding Paul, and it's happening on the temple grounds. And once again, Paul finds himself in a seemingly impossible position. Now, let me explain. This gets interesting from here. In fact, let me show you this picture now. There's, a, there's this picture that will help you understand what's going on. So Paul is there on the temple grounds, and there's this mob surrounding him, and they're actually beginning to beat him, okay? Now, next to the temple grounds, there is what's known as the Antonia Fortress, okay? You can see the colonnades of the temple grounds. Well, just to the right there, the big structure, that's the Antonia Fortress. So that's a Roman fortress, right? And there were Roman soldiers stationed there. Now, the Antonia Fortress is positioned in such a way so that the Romans can keep an eye on the everyday religious life of the Jews as they practice it on the temple grounds, you see? So this mob surrounding Paul, the Romans take notice. In fact, there, there's a little walkway that's connected right from this fortress right to the temple grounds. So if they see something going on that they think they need to control, they can be there in a matter of minutes. And that's exactly what happens. They see Paul get another beatdown in his life from his own people, and they rush out onto the temple grounds to figure out what's happening. Acts chapter 21, verse 35. And when he, Paul, came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him, away with him. So Paul is then taken to the Roman barracks, and the Romans are trying to figure out, who is this guy? Why, 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 are, why, are, his own people, why are they so, why are they so mad at him? Who is he? Now, this is hardly the beginning, nor will it be the end of Paul's uh, sufferings. There's actually a lot going on here. Um, he will face these hardships for the rest of his life. In a short time, he will become a prisoner of Rome. But the man has incredible courage. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Where does this courage come from? We're going to answer that toward the end. But here's, here's the deal. Jesus called Paul to reach some of the most difficult people on the planet. And you know who those people were? Religious people. Let me say it again. Jesus gave Paul this task to reach his own countrymen, as well as Gentiles. But some of the most difficult people on the planet to reach are religious people, people who think that they're already close to God, but in fact, they, they're far from him. And that's where we pick it up in, verse, in chapter 21, verse 37. By the way, Paul is going to take every opportunity to talk about Jesus. So as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, 
He said to the tribune, and think of the tribune as, as sort of like a military commander. He says, may I say something to you? And the tribune says, do you know Greek? Hey, you're speaking Greek. I'm not sure. This is a surprise. This is rather shocking. And now what follows is a case of mistaken identity, and I'll explain why. The tribune says, no, wait a minute. Are you not this Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So there was this Egyptian who gathered 4,000 people. They were in the hills outside of Jerusalem, and they acted as assassins. They carried little daggers. We know this because the Roman historian Josephus, this is extra-biblical writing I'm talking about, he actually writes about this Egyptian. So we know a little bit about him. So all he knows is he's got this guy in front of him. He's assuming that he's a Jew, but then Paul opens his mouth and he begins speaking Greek. And the tribune's mind is kind of blown. He's like, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got like this, we got like this, this 10 most wanted list and the Egyptian is on there. Are you this guy? Paul replied, I'm a Jew, not an Egyptian, from Tarsus in Cilicia. I'm a citizen of no obscure city. And he's right about that. Tarsus had an educational system, schools that rivaled those in Athens. Paul says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people who want to kill me. Now, you have to picture Paul, you know, a little bit. He's kind of probably maybe some blood flowing from the lips, the nose. And when he had given him permission, yeah, you can talk to the people. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, I'm about to make a defense before you now. So this tribune's name is Lysias. He's got the mistaken identity, thinking that Paul is someone that he's not, he asked for clarity. Greek was the language of cultured people. So immediately he knows there's something different about this guy. Not only does he speak Greek, but he speaks the Hebrew language. And he's like, you know, we never captured that Egyptian guy. And some of his, again, Josephus tells us, when Rome put the smackdown on this Egyptian and his 4,000 assassins, they kind of scattered and disbanded. But they still had this reputation for going into the city and robbing and stealing from people. So there's still a threat. Lysias thinks the crowd may have captured this Egyptian, but of course Paul is not that man. Instead, Paul identifies himself as a Jew. And he says, look, here's the deal. I have every right to be in the temple. I have the bloodline to be there. I'm a citizen from Tarsus, no insignificant city. And then he courageously asks permission to speak. I don't know about you, but if there was a group of people trying to kill me, I might want to get away from them as fast as possible. See, all throughout this text, you're going to see, see, the question must be asked, what is it about Paul? See, we read these people in, in the Bible, and we're like, boy, I could never be like Paul. Now we're asking the question, well, what is he like? The man's heart is filled with compassion. He took the mandate from Jesus seriously when he says, you're going to reach these people your own, and the Gentiles. And so he begins to preach to the very people that want him 
dead. Without the soldiers there, the people he's addressing would certainly kill him in a second. It's incredible love and compassion. He motions to the crowd, they grow quiet, and then he opens his mouth and he begins to give what he hopes will be a well-reasoned defense. And to show that he's not undermining Judaism, and so he's gonna lay out his personal testimony. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna explain the radical transformation that happened in his own life. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So the Hebrews, they had regional dialects, the Jews had regional dialects, but they had a, a, for the most part, a shared dialect as well, and that would have been Aramaic. So that's why we believe Paul is now speaking Aramaic, it's their shared language, and they all get quiet. They wanna hear what he has to say. And by the way, at this point, they know Paul is not a commoner. He's speaking Greek, he's speaking Aramaic, He's from Tarsus, and he said, let me tell you my story. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, Jerusalem. This is my hometown. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was the master rabbi. Not anybody could be his student. You had to be hand-chosen, only the best of the best. Paul says, I was a student of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are to this day. And then he says this, I persecuted this way. Early Christians were called the way. Why? I think in part because Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. And so Christians became known as those who belong to the way. You want to get to God? You got to get there through Jesus. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Yeah, if you read the story earlier in Acts, he actually received official letters from the high priest giving him authority to enter these spaces and say, any Christians here? Any Christians here? If so, I'm more than happy to oversee your persecution. In fact, he oversaw the death of the first recorded Christian martyr, Stephen. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So in other words, he says, look, if I'm accused of being anti-Jewish or anti-Judaism, that would be as if I was opposing myself because look at my street cred, look at my record. I am a Jew born in no obscure city. I studied under Gamaliel, I was a Jewish zealot. Oh, and by the way, I sought to kill Christians. Now, y'all might wanna listen to the rest of my story because how did I get from there to here? says, I'm no enemy of Judaism. No one can question my regard for God and his law, but I get it. I get where you're coming from right now because I used to think like you. But you see, something happened to me that so transformed my life. It was when I was traveling down that Damascus Road with those official papers in hand, and I was just so ready to bring persecution to more Christians, and then 
Well, let me tell you my story. Verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? See, Saul, he did Paul, this is his name before, throughout the book of Acts, it's Paul, pre-conversion, he was known as Saul. And he knows he's in the presence of something greater than himself because he says, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I can't even imagine what Paul must have felt in that, just in that moment, hearing, those, hearing that name, whom you are persecuting. By the way, did Paul ever directly persecute Jesus? This is, a, this is a post-crucifixion appearance. No, but what does Jesus say? He's like, you are persecuting me. So in other words, to persecute the followers of Jesus, it's as if you're persecuting Jesus himself. Uh, so now those who were with me, they saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so I said, what, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were there with me, and I came into Damascus. I, I, you know, you just have to stop. You have to consider what Paul is revealing about Jesus. One of the things he's revealing is this. Nobody, there's not a single person in this room that is beyond the outstretched and saving arm of Jesus Christ. You really need to know that. Because we live in a culture and an environment that is heavy in guilt and shame. And people are buried under it. One of the most easily verifiable truths of the Bible is that men and women are sinners, okay? You know, it's a pretty easy one to prove. You've heard me say it like this before. The reason why the world is so jacked up is because we do wrong. <laughs> you know, every single person has this overwhelming tendency to serve themselves, first and foremost. In essence, that's what the Bible calls sin. Well, the Bible also says there are consequences of sin. You know, you reap what you sow. That's true. The Bible also says that sin is fun, appealing, but only for a season, and then it bites you. It's like the sugar coating, but not the cavity. But the cavity follows. So, so many of us could parade up here and we could give our testimonies and say, can I just give witness of how I thought in my own mind, my own worldview as I shaped it, I thought this was the right thing, whether it refers to my sexuality, my identity, the pursuit of what I think is going to make me happy. And what I will tell you is that I'm bankrupt. I'm brought low. because we reap what we sow, both positively and negatively. And so we live in this world that just loves to heap shame, and, and we do it so quickly. I mean, that is really the heartbeat of cancel culture. It's as if to say, you don't count. You shouldn't count. You should be silenced. Yeah. 
And what ends up happening, we have a, a, just a world, we have an entire nation, we have a world full of people who just carry these burdens. A lot of times this is the burden of even comparison, comparing ourselves to others. And so some of us, um, we think we've got these really terrible sins in our, our past. Some of us might be militantly opposed to Christianity, you know? Um, well, that was Paul. But the risen Lord Jesus Christ saved him and can save you. Uh, you know, he can open your eyes and give you just a glimpse of his grace and his mercy. And I'm just here to tell you, that's the thing that your soul craves is forgiveness. You see, you, deep down inside, you really, you want You want to know that you are loved unconditionally for who you really are. See, our culture is super good at wearing masks. Some of us are really, really good at it. You know, it's the mask, I'll put this mask on and I will be what you want me to be. You know, but you're never really going to get to know the, the real me because I'm afraid if you get to know the real me, you're not gonna like me. So I'm just gonna pretend to be somebody I'm not. You know how many people in the world are running around that they're, they're living lives that are just kind of fake? And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, let me just tell you, the cross removes all of that. You are loved for who you are, this is the beautiful thing, in spite of who you are. And if there was anybody whose story communicated that, it would be Paul. And I don't know what you've done. You, maybe you've done some really gnarly things, and you're like, you don't know what these hands have done, what these eyes have seen. You don't know where these feet have taken me. You don't know what this body has been engaged in. Well, Paul would say to you, I killed Christians. And yet, I found mercy and grace and forgiveness. But I will say this, if you notice carefully, something had to happen to Paul before he came to that place. You know what it was? He had to be humbled. You know, he's walking down the Damascus Road, he's got official letters from the guys on high, and he's been very successful. He's on the fast track to becoming, you know, sort of like the religious zealot making a name for himself. Paul is the man, he's got such an impressive religious resume. And in the next second, he's like, okay, I'm gonna need help walking because I can't see. Brought low. There's a reason why it's been said pride is the original sin. Satan had this view of himself and he thought, I'll ascend God's throne. I'll make myself like God. That is the exact same thing that is within the human spirit. We don't verbalize it that way, but essentially what we're saying is, God, I'll just go ahead and take you off the throne, and I'll put myself on the throne, because at the end of the day, it's really my will that's going to be carried out and not yours, so step aside. So Paul understands all this. You know, he's sharing his testimony. He's like, look, this is the story of transformation. But when you're full of yourself, it's really difficult for God to fill you. And so Paul was brought low. And verse 16, he hammers it home near the end. He says, and now, this is great. He's, just, he's like, why are you waiting? We're all in the same boat. 
Why, are you, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is, a, this is actually a really significant statement. Okay, so the Jews had these uh, ceremonial, these rituals, the cleansing rituals. If they, if they touched a dead body, for example, they had to perform these ritualistic, um, the ceremonial cleansing where they would wash their hands in a very specific way. Okay? They're very familiar with that. But when he says you need to be baptized, to a first century Jew, baptism was something that Gentiles participated in. Not necessarily Jews. Jews, yeah, they're, they're dirty. You know, they got a little dirt on their hands. Okay, they can wash their hands, right? But see, the Gentiles, now those are really dirty people. They need to go all the way under. They need to be baptized. They're so dirty. And what does Paul say? See, some of you think you're a little better than you are, you religious people. So here's the deal. Get under the water because you're as filthy as the Gentile. Oh, and by the way, baptism is all about identification. And now, Paul is saying, you are called to be identified with the name of Jesus, calling on his, his name. So he continues the story, verse 17. So when I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So this is interesting. He addresses them, and then he says, but then Jesus spoke to me, and he said, you know, here's the deal. They're, they're not going to accept what you have to say about me. Now, Paul has a hard time with this. You know, he has a hard time embracing this. He, he's kind of like, no, no, surely, surely they'll understand. Verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned, look at this, and Paul beat those who believed in you. He's like, my Jewish brothers will understand this. They know my history. They're going to accept what I have to say. They, they knew my life before, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, that's the first Christian martyr, he says, I myself was standing by. The text tells us that the guys who were throwing stones at Stephen, you don't, if you're chucking stones at somebody, you don't want this, you know, you don't want to cumbersome, you know, uh, uh, like uh, your, your outer cloak, right, slowing your arm speed down. So they take their coats off, and they put them at the feet of Saul, of Saul who is Paul, and that's what he says. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. But then I made a dramatic turn. Jesus, certainly my story is going to convince them that it's all true. And Jesus said to me, go away. You got to get out of here. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is so interesting to me because Paul was this super religious guy. And what he's telling us is that religion does not save you. Jesus came to save religious people. Some of his harshest conversations were for those who thought they were close to God, but they didn't know God at all. Because they practiced, watch this now, not a form of godly righteous, but a form of self-righteous. And that's why the gospel is the way it is. You know, when Paul describes the gospel, he says, it's all the work of God. It's not a matter of your own work, because if it was, then we would all have something to boast about. Think about that, and that's true. So, so if God's like, okay, y'all have to earn your way to me, then we would all be running around going, how many good deeds did you do today? Three? Pff, I smoked you. I did ten. I'm so much more saved than you. 
And then he goes on to say, if that was the case, right, if we're saved by works, then the great patriarch Abraham wins hands down. Why? Because he was willing to do the work of sacrificing his son. Yet he goes on and he says, that wasn't what I thought about that. Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this is, a su- this is super beautiful. This is, I mean, the gospel presentation that Paul lays out here is so good. God gave Paul this ministry, reaching the very people he was most prejudiced against, the Gentiles. It's like God says, You're, Paul, here's the deal, man. You, you know, you, you hated the Gentiles. You hated Christians. Now, you're going to have a ministry to the very people uh, that you were so prejudiced against because God's family is just that big. So this is the proverbial straw that breaks the cam- camel's back for the listeners. Um, if they hated Paul before, once he talks about taking the message of God, that God is for the Gentiles, the non-Jew, the crowd is just out of their mind. They can't handle it anymore. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Except when he started talking about how God is for the Gentiles. Then they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They, they want him dead. So let me summarize what happens next. The soldiers intervene. And um, they really want to know who this guy Paul is. He's super intriguing. Still don't know. He's not the Egyptian. So they're going to beat the truth out of him. So, you know, as they're stretching his body out, Paul says, time out. You might not want to do this because I am actually a Roman citizen. And I have rights. And in this moment, you're violating my rights. Verse 29. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid. You know, it's like he's broken the law. For you realize that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You can't do that kind of thing without, at least without a trial. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And he's like, listen, we got we, we to figure out who this guy is. Going to give you a chance to explain yourself one more time. And again, Paul will find himself in this situation many times. And every time. He uses it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Earlier I asked, where does courage come from? Let me say this first. Christian, you're going to need courage in this life. If you haven't had some opportunities to display courage, what's going on? Uh, the culture, the world is what God wants to redeem. But as we've said many times, as a Christian, you will stand for what the world stands against. You will stand against what the world stands for. It's going to put you at odds. Um, There is a cultural tide that runs very swift. All you have to do is step into it and you will be carried away. It's standing firm. Standing your ground um, in both big and small ways. Um, I mentioned this in the email this last week, but every once in a while, a friend will alert me about some comment that's made about me either on YouTube or online or something like that, you know, in regard to one of the sermons. And um, YouTube's great, man. It's just the comment section is just like full of snipers, right? It's super fun. And so <laughs> I, think it was, I think it was a YouTube comment anyway. Somebody said... Uh, hey, that guy sounds like Ray Romano. Do you know who that is? 
right? There was a really popular show in the 90s. You're laughing because it's kind of true. It's a popular show in the 90s. Everybody loves uh, Raymond. And this guy kind of had like a nasally voice, right? And kind of a little bit irritating. And someone made the comment, yeah, he sounds like Ray Romano, okay? All right. Then someone commented after that, yeah, he looks like him. <laughs> now, I, you know, I'm not saying he's George Clooney or anything, or he's the ugliest guy. But things will be said about you in life. Now, you know, in reality, that's a very small thing. And totally, at the end of the day, totally inconsequential. But when things are said that are true, you see, when, I, when I'm told, hey, Jason, you might want to check yourself right now because your frustration is showing. Frustration is a kind euphemism for the word anger. Hey, Jason, um, just want to remind you, this isn't about you. When the Emperor Constantine became a Christian, it is told that he had a man constantly following him whose mouth was at the height of Constantine's ear. Because wherever the emperor went, people were just like, ah, it's the emperor. But because of his Christian faith, he realized that the path to greatness is not through power, it's through humility. And so he would have this man say to his ear, every time he got some praise from, from the crowd, this man would whisper, you're just a man. You're just a man. There's a tremendous amount of self-awareness there. This is part of Paul's testimony being brought low. And so, you know, I began to think of what Paul has to say to me in these moments. I'm reminded that the Christian has a unique way of looking at himself or herself and their surroundings. Paul had this amazing Jewish resume. And in fact, it was a great point of pride for him. He thought he was superior to others. And by the way, uh, people who live in shame and guilt, that actually can be just as self-absorbing as those who are proud. Because if you're constantly living in shame and guilt, what you're doing is, is you're making it all about you whether it's superiority or inferiority, actually both of those feelings are misguided. And so Paul says, here's my thing, I need to be washed clean. I need to get all the way under the water. I need to be baptized. I was just as filthy as what you all think those Gentiles are. I wasn't as great as I thought that I was. In fact, I was so wrong, I was so misguided, I needed to be brought low. But then, when I was brought low, the most amazing thing happened because I found the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. And in that moment, you know what happened to me? I was brought high. And so, in the gospel, you have this, this great equilibrium that brings joy. And because you can be very secure in who you are and God's love for you, that is actually the path to being courageous in your Christian walk. Let me say that again. When you find your identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the very thing that allows you to be 
courageous in your faith. You can say, look, I'm, I'm gonna do what God calls me to do because I'm not looking at myself. I'm looking to Jesus. Pretty soon, Paul is going to face some very, very dire circumstances. Certainly, he will be imagining, well, is this it, God? Is this it? Is this death? But even in death, the Christian wins. The English poet George Herbert wrote this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. So, Father, it's another rich, rich text, and it speaks to everybody in the room. Lord, for those who... Man, they're here, they're not, they're not sure why they're here, you know why. Just as Paul said, why wait? Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit you continue to draw people to yourself. Lord, for those of us who, we, you know, we just kind of need this example from Paul right now in our lives, too often we're controlled by our fears and those fears keep us from stepping into what you have for us. And, but that's where the real joy in life is. So God, even as we enter into this time of remembering what Jesus did on the cross, God, will you draw us near, will you bring us low, but at the same time lift us high and remind us of your great love. All for your glory we pray in Christ's name, amen.